Well, let me say hello to everyone who's joining us, not just in this room, but uh, from Elliot Hall or who are watching online. It's such a gift to be with you today. I want to begin our time together by reading this prayer that Paul prayed over the Ephesians, the Christians uh, in the Ephesian church. And as I read this prayer, listen, receive, uh, as if Paul is praying for you. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to know, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I have a friend who once said, whatever experience Paul was having with God as he wrote that down, I want in on that. Uh, We're beginning today a series on the love of Christ. And our anchoring text is right there in the middle of this prayer. And I want to look at this a little bit closer as we begin, beginning with verse 16. Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Again, these are such breathtaking words, but here's something that sort of tripped me up as I was preparing for this. Paul says, so that Christ may dwell might dwell in your hearts. So uh, one of the questions for me at least was, here Paul is writing to Christians in the Ephesian church. And if the New Testament is clear about anything, it's that the moment you become a Christian, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, Christ in that moment dwells now in your heart. And yet here Paul is like, I'm praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts. I mean, what is Paul insinuating here? Is it that they aren't really Christians yet? Or is there something else that he's kind of hinting at? Verse 17, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of God's people. Power to do what? To grasp. To, uh, the, the word in the original text is kata lambano, to seize, to lay hold of, that you might grasp how wide and long and high and deep is this love that we have in Christ. And so here's what I think Paul is saying to the Ephesians and to us. You can have something in your life without truly grasping it and knowing it like deeply in here where it makes a difference. That when you put your faith in Jesus, you become God's child, full stop. You are now his for all of eternity, but that's not the same as grasping God's love and the fullness of of his love experientially in your life. So let me try and illustrate that. Uh, This summer, we took the kids to Montana to visit Allie's brother. And we were staying uh, not too far down the road from Yellowstone National Park. Now, part of our time out there, I was studying and preparing for sermons and reading. And I mean, if you've got to write sermons, Bozeman kind of beats Dallas. It's close, but the edge goes to a river runs through it. 
So working on this sermon, I had a little bit of an aha moment. It made me think back to something that, that I once learned from my mentor, Vic Pence. And here's what it was. It was almost like I had two Yellowstones in my life. One Yellowstone was, was at my fingertips, and it was this beautiful, immersive coffee table book that was right there in the house that we were staying, right next to where I was studying. And the other Yellowstone was the Yellowstone that was out the window, beyond the window of the house, and beyond the gates of the park. Now, this Yellowstone coffee table book was really helpful. Not only was it beautiful, it had lovely pictures, it had great information. I learned a lot about Yellowstone through the book. We were able to plan our trip and have a better idea of which sites we were going to see because there's a million things you want to see and how long is it going to take to get from Old Faithful to Yellowstone Lake. And if we hadn't had the book and we just decided to go at any time, like we're going to go through the gates at 11 o'clock, we wouldn't have known that there's going to be a mile-long pileup of Winnipeg Winnebago's going seven miles an hour that you got to drive behind the whole time through the park. Not that driving a Winnebago is bad. Without the book, it wouldn't have been nearly as fulfilling an experience because we kind of knew what we were getting into before we actually paid the ranger to enter into the park. So it's good to have the Yellowstone coffee table size book. And for the first few days that we were in Montana, that was the only Yellowstone I knew. Okay. Sometimes as Christians, we let our beliefs and our theology and our right thinking and our doctrine be our coffee table, you know, book inside the cabin. And we think what really matters is the coffee table book. As long as I'm faithful to the book and I learn all the names and all the places in the book and I've seen the photographs and if they ever were to give me a pop quiz about the book, I'm going to pass. But see, it's one thing to learn about all the great things in the book, and if somebody were to ask you what are the best things about Yellowstone, and you can say, oh, well, of course there's Old Faithful, I've read about that, and then there's the Grand Prismatic Spring, and there's the Lower Yellowstone Falls if you've got enough time, that looks awesome, but if you really want to see some bison or a grizzly, you've got to go through Lamar Valley. It is one thing to know all of that stuff sitting in my cabin. But it is something else to go and experience it and to be blown away by the absolute awe and wonder of it all and to feel so small in this expansive terrain and to smell the sulfur coming up out of the geysers and to watch the bison walk up next to your car as you're yelling at the kids to you know, keep all of the limbs inside of the windows. And it's, it's as if Paul is saying, to the Ephesians, I want you to stop hanging out in the cabin and I want you to get out into the Yellowstone beyond the window. I want you to go into the park and get out of the car. I want you to go on an adventure and explore, actually experience God's greatness, his glory and his wonder and his power with your eyes and with your ears and, and, and see what that does to your heart and how he can change your life. Turn your information into exhilaration. And so here's what Paul prays, that you may grasp, that you may take hold of and experience more and more how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Yes, this love that dwells inside of you, but you got to experience it. Does that make any sense? We made it into Yellowstone, by the way, and it was a great day. 
Um, and we had the book and the experience of the book, and we had spoken to Ranger Rick about all the safety regulations, stay 100 feet away from the wildlife, especially the bison. Um, here's a few pictures that we took on our actual trip to the Yellowstone. Wheeler's in the back seat, and he took these pictures as we're stuck in a traffic jam behind the Winnebago's. Okay, so you see 30 feet away and then six feet away, and now the bison is literally right next to us as we're going through Yellowstone. So we tried to follow the rules from the book, but we were stuck. But now we weren't just reading about it. We got to experience it. When it comes to God's love for the next few weeks, we don't just want to read about it, know about it, hear about it, sing about it, listen to rumors about it. We want to go on an adventure and have the experience of living out real time and living into the reality of grasping how wide and long and high and deep is his love for us. So this morning we're asking the question, how wide? How wide is the love of Christ? Here's what we encounter in Jesus. He went out, Jesus 2,000 years ago went out into a world of this and he went like this. He reached beyond these barriers that had separated people for centuries. He reached out to those who were left out and he said, you are loved. He reached even to his enemies and he said, you, you are now friends. In fact, you see this wide love of Christ. And one of the titles that Jesus earned over time, especially from the religious leaders, they called him a friend of sinners. And it's slightly ironic because they meant it as an insult. And Jesus almost seemed to embrace it like that. Yeah, that's my mission. In the gospels, the word sinners, it shows up here and there. Usually it's the Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders that are describing these people who don't belong in God's family, people who don't belong in the church that Jesus keeps reaching out to. But see, the problem with the word sinner is that it's almost always used for somebody other than me. It's those people or that group or that kind of person. And it's a way of saying they don't belong. And one day Jesus uh, opened his arms wide to a guy named Zacchaeus. It's an incredible story that we find in Luke chapter 19. It's also one of the stories that makes it really clear who went to Sunday school growing up and who didn't. Because if you went to Sunday school, you probably know the song, the really just cheesy song about Zacchaeus. I'm not going to sing it. I don't have time, but also because it's vertically insensitive, but it's a great song. And you can ask Alexa to sing it later. Now, what do we know about Zacchaeus besides his height? We're told that Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Now, that was not the ancient equivalent of an IRS agent. Uh, just so a little background here. When the Roman Empire conquered this part of the ancient world as a way of holding on to the oppression and keeping the people weak and subjugated, the way the Romans gathered taxes in that day is they hired a bunch of tax collectors. And they said, hey, as long as we get the amount that we are requiring from you, you can keep whatever else you can bring in. And they had these Roman soldiers that went around with the tax collectors bullying people into these oppressively high taxes. That's why everybody hated tax collectors. Well, not only was Zacchaeus a tax collector, but we're told he was a chief tax collector. And when you're at the top of the pyramid, you get a piece of what everybody else brings in. From a religious perspective, if there's an us versus them, Zacchaeus is about as them as you could possibly get. One more thing, it's kind of interesting. Uh, because of all this, a person of faith, 
a faithful Jewish person was forbidden from eating with or eating in the presence of a tax collector or God forbid ever going into one of their homes. Because in a sense, if you were to do that, you would be taking on their sinfulness and their shame. This is Luke 19, verse 4. So he, Zacchaeus, he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him to see Jesus, since Jesus was coming that way. And I love that the writer Luke, who's a physician by trade, um, he tells us the exact kind of species of tree. It's a sycamore fig tree. Why that detail? Well, for one, they had uh, low-hanging branches, and so a vertically challenged individual like Zacchaeus uh, could climb up into the tree. They also had these broad leaves, which meant somebody could kind of be hidden behind the leaves of a tree, somebody who maybe didn't want to be seen. Remember, people didn't like tax collectors. But then there's something else kind of interesting. There was this ancient book of laws for the Jewish people called the Mishnah. And one of these obscure laws in the Mishnah said that you were forbidden to plant any sycamore trees within 50 cubits or about 75 yards of the village or town in which you lived. So it's likely that Zacchaeus is so concerned about being seen, being noticed, that he goes outside the town of Jericho to climb a tree where he's waiting for Jesus to leave the town and walk back to wherever he's going. It's like he's hoping by that time the crowd will have thinned, Jesus might even be alone, but this doesn't happen because Jesus has this rock star status at this point in his ministry, and so the crowd just stays with him even as he leaves the city of Jericho. Here's how the late New Testament scholar Ken Bailey describes this scene. He says, in all likelihood, someone from the crowd, as they're following Jesus outside of Jericho, they see Zacchaeus up in the sycamore tree. Now, this is totally embarrassing for Zacchaeus, a man of his wealth, to be hidden up in a tree. It's kind of shameful. But normally, no one would ever mock a tax collector to his face, because if you do that, he's just going to tax you even more. But you see, there's anonymity in the crowd. And so people start hurling insults, and all the rage against this corrupt government system, it just starts spewing out in the direction of Zacchaeus. They're yelling at him, laying into him, and Jesus is watching all of this take place as he then opens his mouth. And you have to understand, this massive crowd, they just assume, they know what Jesus is about to say because he's a holy religious leader. He's going to confront Zacchaeus and he's going to condemn him for being a sinner. Zacchaeus, you are a bad person and you're a sinner and you need to repent. But that's not what Jesus says. Instead, verse 5, Jesus looked up and he he said to him, Zacchaeus, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now, the crowd, you can just imagine, is like, what? I mean, here's a respected rabbi, a man of the cloth, and he stops in his tracks and he invites himself to go have dinner in the home of a despised tax collector. And that's why we're told, verse 7, that all the people saw this and they began to mutter, to grumble, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. A scandal is brewing here, and now now Jesus is, is taking on the condemnation that has been directed towards Zacchaeus, and he's taking it on himself. It's like Jesus is giving us a little bit of a taste of what he came to do for all of us. Now, 
we don't know anything about what was discussed and what happened over dinner at the house of Zacchaeus. Most likely they ate in the courtyard uh, where people could watch from the street. That's what a wealthy person's home would often look like. There was a big courtyard and their meals were almost these public events as people watched from beyond the courtyard. And for Zacchaeus, this is literally his come to Jesus moment in life. Just think about the scene and the crowd that is gathered and just astonished outside this courtyard. And maybe at some point during the meal, Jesus, as they're, you know, they're eating and having conversation, maybe he looks out into that crowd and he can see the widow who lost her home because she was behind in her taxes. And then he looks over here and he sees the family that, that had to sell their business because, because the taxes were too high. And then he sees that little girl who couldn't get the care that she needed because Zacchaeus had wrung their family out of every dime to their name. And he's confronted by the weight of his own actions and the weight of his sin. But all of this in the context of the intimacy of a personal encounter with the Son of God. Whatever they talked about, we don't know. But when Jesus comes into your home and when he opens his arms wide and you let him in, everything changes. And that's exactly what happens, verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up. And he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated everybody, just imagine he's in this courtyard and Zacchaeus stands up and everybody's watching the crowd who's gathered. And he says, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Nobody saw that coming. I, I wonder if the person who was most surprised in this moment, maybe it was Mrs. Zacchaeus and she was like, Wow, that's really generous, and th those were the kind of conversations we're supposed to maybe run by each other first. But think about those words. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, how many people do you think Zacchaeus has cheated in his life as a chief tax collector in a big city like Jericho? Just about everybody in that town. And now he's going to make things right. And that's always what happens when the gospel gets in here. Well, how does Jesus respond to this life-changing uh, public commitment that, that Zacchaeus has just made? Look at this, verse 9. Jesus says, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And then we get what almost sounds like a mission statement uh, that this is what Jesus came to do. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Salvation has come to you, Zacchaeus. And he's saying to everybody around, and now Zacchaeus, he's part of the family. He belongs. Listen up, everybody in the crowd. Zacchaeus is now one of us. He's no longer your enemy. He's not that sinner. God's love has come to him. And now God is saying to all of us, what I have done for Zacchaeus, I want you to, I want you to do for the whole world. And it is so hard. It is so hard to love those who've wronged us and we get scared along the way. And sometimes I don't want to rock the boat. I wonder what people will think. What if people don't like it? What if it gets messy? What if I become uncomfortable? Part of this, part of this, when, when you have your arms stretched wide like this, what's like the one thing you can't do? 
You can't protect yourself. You can't fight back. You're, you're able to be hurt. You're vulnerable. But is this not the posture of Jesus, the one who went to the cross, and, and it's as if in our wideness we can say to the world, I have been crucified with Christ, and the life I now live is no longer my life, but the life that Christ lives in me. I'm going to close uh, with a story if the fire alarm thing doesn't go off again and we you know, have to do something wild here. Um, this is from a guy named Sean who helped to lead this little house church in the city of Swansea in the UK. And uh, incidentally, the name of this little community was called Zach's Place, which they got from Zacchaeus. And Sean would often say that the word, the name Zacchaeus, also meant pure. And those who are sometimes seen as filthy in the eyes of the world are often those who Jesus came to make pure. Well, one night they're meeting at Zach's place for their Bible study, and uh, because the door goes straight out onto the street, anybody can literally stumble through the door. Um, people who live on the streets in the you know, downtown area they are. Well, on this particular night, a woman literally fell through the door, and she was high or strung out or drunk, and she was just in a foul mood. Uh, they knew Jenny, Jenny well. In fact, just a few weeks before, she had come into their gathering and she was just swearing and she was saying, look at the state of me. How can you tell me that God loves me? She just felt so dirty and so far removed from being loved by God as, as, as anybody could possibly be. And she came into their little church Bible study gathering and, and, and she just created absolute chaos. The Bible study Ended, in disarray, ended up in disarray and she's just swaying around and she's stumbling over and yelling and, and, and in the middle of the study. And then one of the members kind of discreetly uh, walks out the door into the kitchen and Sean, the leader, thought, well, that was kind of a good idea. You might want to leave now before it gets really crazy. But then this man comes back into the gathering with a big bowl of water. And he went over to where this lady was now sitting down and he had this tub of water and you could just, when she, as soon as she saw it, you could see the look on her face. She thought, oh no, not again. Because that morning she had been woken up by somebody throwing a bucket of water over her because she was sleeping in the entrance to their shop. And you could just see that look of panic in her face. Please, not again. But instead of that happening, this guy, uh, kneels down and he gently asks her, can I, can I bathe your feet? And she agreed and he removed her ratty, smelly socks and shoes. And when you take off somebody's socks that's been sleeping on the streets, living on the streets, this is not, sometimes it's not just the socks that come off. And the stench was unbelievable. And he tried to be so gentle because he could tell that it was quite painful. And he gently bathed and cleaned her feet. Her demeanor began to change. Her shoulders dropped. Her guard came down. And she just sat back in that chair and became still. And then after a little while, she started singing that old Sunday school song. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. And this peace and this calm just descended on that place. And Sean thought, you know, I think that's probably a pretty good place for us to end the study tonight. 
Somebody said, well, we didn't get very far in our Bible study. And someone else was like, are, are you watching what's happening? And Jenny left their gathering that night with her arms around a couple friends just singing, yes, Jesus loves me, as loud, at the top of her voice down the street. About a week later, the newspaper had a story about a woman who'd been found dead on the streets of Swansea. And it was Jenny, and she had accidentally overdosed. Sean, the leader of Zach's place, reached out to her family, and as they were making arrangements for the funeral, he spoke with Jenny's father. He was a kind man, and he talked about how he had just longed for so many years for a phone call from his little girl, who was now about 40 years old, and just a call that says, Dad, can you send a cab? I'm ready to come home. And he loved his girl so much, and he said, I don't want... We don't want too much religious stuff at the funeral. He said, we don't want any hymns or anything like that, but, but there's, there's one thing that we would love to do. Could we just sing this one song if it's okay? And Sean said, what song? And he said, I'd like us to sing, Yes, Jesus Loves Me. The father said, that's the song that I used to sing her to sleep to when she was a little girl. And it struck Sean that throughout all of her life with whatever pain and heartache and shame that she had carried, that somewhere in the midst of all the mess and all the madness, there was this slightest glimmer that God had not forgotten her, that she dared to have faith that Jesus might still love her, and her life was tragically cut short, but to think that she, somewhere in the moments with this relative stranger bathing her feet, and in that moment she just felt something of the touch of God's love, I said, you know what? I've not forgotten you. You are loved. You are loved. And Jesus, that we believe is your love for us. Would you help us to experience it from you? Your love for us, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.